Hi everyone, and a very warm welcome to the first official episode of Considering Culture, my latest podcast. As the name might suggest, this podcast is going to be all about me talking about things that interest me, which broadly speaking fall into categories of language, literature and history, as well as current topics and debates. Before I start, however, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank the people who played a role in making this a reality. Firstly, a massive thank you to all the lovely people in Stoner and Ashcombe for being so encouraging and receptive when I first brought the idea up, as well as the rest of my year for their support. Thanks as well to my close friends showing enthusiasm despite my annoying secrecy and bearing with me being cryptic. Finally, a special mention to Deny for waiting ever so patiently. Whilst I'm not sorry for not giving you any more hints, I hope this episode is something interesting and informative that you'll all enjoy. Well, without further ado, let's get started. As you may have already seen in the vague description and title, this episode is about my newfound appreciation for the book 1984, as well as the Cold War history covered in the GCSE course. Is it slightly weird that I feel excitement about certain aspects of my GCSE subjects, instead of the usual anxiety, boredom and dread that I feel whenever I look at anything to do with maths? Maybe, maybe it is. However, I think once you look past the pressures of being tested on all of this content, you'll realise just how interesting and relevant the things we study actually are. Anyone in my year, or in the sixth form, as well as possibly the lower fifth, would be familiar with George Orwell's dystopian novel 1984, of which Winston Smith is the protagonist. For anyone lower down in the school, a fair warning if you do decide to read this book that it was not designed to end in a happy way. The purpose of this book is to serve as a warning from a man who has seen the good, the bad and the ugly when it comes to governments and totalitarian regimes. One of the things I absolutely adore about this book is Orwell's immaculate attention to detail. While some of the points I will make about his work could either be entirely unintentional in his part, or just me reading too far between the lines, I'd like to think he wrote most of what he did for a reason. Take the title of the novel, for example. Orwell published this book in 1949, and the book itself is set in 1984. When you really think about it, there isn't that much of a time difference between 49 and 84. The most common trope I find of dystopian fiction is a world set so far into the future or in the past that all of its horrors and faults and mishaps can be overlooked due to that time frame being so unattainable. I'm talking about books set millennia in the future, complete with aliens, spaceships, maybe some radioactive monsters for good measure. For me personally, that setting means I don't have that sinking realisation that this could very well be a reality. When Orwell sets his novel so seemingly near in the future, only a couple decades away, it forces the reader to realise that this could happen. That if we, the people, were not careful and critical of the messages we intake, a situation like this could occur. Whether he intended the setting to convey this meaning or not, it's safe to say that that was the last straw, in a good way, and cemented my appreciation for his work. After that lengthy and definitely not depressing segment, I'm sure some of you might be more curious about the second character mentioned in the title, Oleg Gordievsky. Can I just say, before I continue, I do adore European languages, yes, but my exposure to Russian has been quite minimal, so if any Russians are listening to this, I'm so sorry for my horrific pronunciations. For those of you who haven't heard of this man before, or read the book, The Spy and the Traitor, I genuinely cannot recommend it enough. 
even if you're one of those people who doesn't care about the secretive nature of the KGB and Cold War politics, don't you just love a good spy story? Whilst I'm not entirely sure how similar Gordievsky's exploits are to that of, you know, 007, I can say that his character was inspired by espionage in the Cold War, and Gordievsky was definitely involved at a key level in this espionage. This is where I finally enter the main point, I suppose, of this entire episode. Drawing comparisons between the realities of the Cold War, espionage and the relations between the USSR and the West, and George Orwell's 1984. I would like to preface this by saying that there is a very slim chance that Orwell somehow managed to base nearly all of the key details of his novel on one man and one giant totalitarian regime. Of this, I am definitely aware. Having said that, though, I believe myself to be reasonably observant and do have good analytical skills, if I may say that myself. And so I couldn't help but noticing both the intentional and coincidental similarities between the party in 1984 and the Soviet government. If you're still here, grab yourself a cup of tea and plenty of snacks and allow me to explain in unnecessary detail the intricacies of the KGB, espionage, as well as tensions between two superpowers at the height of the Cold War. No discussion about the USSR and the Cold War during the 70s and 80s would be complete without mention of three infamous agencies, the CIA, MI6, and my favourite, the KGB. Whilst all three are shrouded in secrecy and, to some people, quite suspicious, it's really the KGB that have drawn my attention, particularly the similarities between the intelligence agency and how Orwell presents the ministries and party in 1984. One of the big coincidences for me is the number 101. Spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't yet read 1984, but room 101 is where all of the torture and forced confessions happen to people suspected of thought crime, which, if you haven't read the book and aren't familiar with Newspeak, is essentially having politically opposed thoughts to the principles of English socialism present in the world of 1984. So basically disagreeing with the party, on even a level of showing a difference in facial expression known as face crime. Surprisingly, one of the many intelligence schools in Russia was called 101, and this was where Gordievsky completed his training. Could it be intentional on Orwell's part to apply feelings of torture and fear to an institution intended to educate? Again, I am not an expert by any means on Orwell's literature or the inner workings of Russian espionage, but this was the first similarity that encouraged me to look closer and find more. Some of you might be aware that the main protagonist of 1984 is a man called Winston Smith. He is very much your classic anti-hero, fatalistic and revels in any and all small acts of rebellion against the omniscient and omnipotent party in Big Brother. I could spend ages discussing how powerfully he's been characterised to show the failings of an oppressive regime and the shell of a man he's been turned into due to having to repress everything natural and human about him. I shall instead divert my attention to the similarities between him and Gordievsky. Both feel trapped in their environment, surrounded by an ideology and way of life that they fundamentally disagree with at every level. Both have a thirst for knowledge, art, music and a rich cultural environment. Perhaps, more surprisingly, they've both dealt with a failing loveless marriage. If the greatest spy since the Second World War who dramatically changed relations between the West and the USSR failed to find love on the first try, I think there's hope for us all. One of the other massive similarities I noticed between the various ministries and the KGB was the working atmosphere. There is a degree of fear and suspicion which was hauntingly explained in McIntyre's account. 
The levels of care that Gordievsky went to to cover his tracks are truly remarkable. One of my favourite examples include when he was able to tell that his former friend, who had now defected to Czechoslovakia, was attempting to trap him because his hands had a slight tremor whilst he held his whiskey glass. In his opinion, that indicated nervousness. I don't know about you, but I would never have picked that up. The intricate ritual he went through every time he went outside to throw off KGB surveillance when he was in Moscow, not to mention the levels of deception that he put his family and close friends to. These are all aspects of the regime and the life that he led that I don't think many of us could stomach. I found myself empathising with him, just as I did with Winston to a degree. This brings me to the big question for this episode. To what extent can we see these parallels today? That's something I'll let you make your own conclusions on after reading the book and listening to this podcast. I think you should also consider the other characters in Gordievsky's life, from his cold and unaffectionate first wife Yelena, to Leila, his second wife, who he seemed to portray as the exact opposite. In my mind, Yelena reminds me of Catherine, Winston's wife, Both were demeaned by these men for apparently not having independent thoughts and opinions and just being vessels for their respective propaganda, whether Soviet or from the party. Whilst I understand where they're both coming from, I think Catherine and Yelena have been painted in an unfair light. After all, Gordievsky did have an affair with Lena whilst he was still married, so can you really blame her for being bitter towards him? Both Catherine and Yelena are simply products of the repressive regimes they grew up in, In my opinion, Gordievsky is a little bit misled when he jumps to portray Leila as totally the polar opposite to Yelena. Although she loved him a lot more than Yelena did, her true life's love and purpose, surprise surprise, was always communism and the Soviet Union. No matter how much she loved him, in the end she fundamentally disagreed with his view of communism and definitely did not understand his fervent desire for freedom from it. Although he was her husband and she loved him very much, Him defecting to the UK was the sole reason for the breakdown of their marriage. And as a girl who had grown up living, breathing communism with all of her family in the KGB, she simply could not understand why he'd want to escape from it. Apart from obvious similarities, I think there's also life lessons that you can look at from these two people. There's no denying that Gordievsky faced immense struggles growing up, secretly rebelling against the very regime in which he was born and brought up in, the regime that his father and brother happily and actively took part in. His older brother and father died without ever knowing the true lengths of espionage and deception and vice versa. It reminds me of a quote from 1984, as Winston reminisces on memories of his dead mother and baby sister. I can't exactly remember what the words are, but he brings up the point that privacy and family were things distinctly connected to the, quote, ancient times. You couldn't feel a tragedy anymore. Not when love and family, privacy and friendship had been so perverted and destroyed. And we see the clear effects of this in Gordievsky's life. His mother inspired his quiet rebellion against the regime, as his grandmother secretly got him and his brother baptised against his father's wishes. These quiet acts of defiance ultimately came to shape his worldview and opinions of the Soviet Union. The same could be said for Winston Smith. Whilst on the surface he strikes me as an annoyingly egotistical and demeaning old man, deep down he is incensed at the apparent lack of outrage and protest at the way he lives his life. He feels as though he's the only person who remembers a chocolate ration was in fact reduced and not increased to 20 grams per week, unlike the rest of the population who just blindly accepts Big Brother's word as gospel. 
People accepting one ominous figure's words as the absolute truth rings familiar, with the rise of fake news and misleading articles, meaning misinformation is all too easily spread. Maybe this is what Orwell was trying to warn us against, that if we don't develop our critical thinking skills to an adequate degree, somebody else very well could think for us. Apart from this, the lasting effects of Gordievsky's explosive reports to the MI6 with inside knowledge of the KGB are still felt today. It was Gordievsky acting as a double agent to Margaret Thatcher and Mikhail Gorbachev that meant Soviet-UK relations were showing an ease in tensions. He had informed each side what to expect from the other, so they were essentially running on a script crafted by one brilliant man designed to ensure a brief moment of calm. The Soviets were reported to have felt respect and admiration for Thatcher's conduct during Yuri Andropov's funeral. He was the former Soviet leader. Had it not been for his extensive knowledge of the inner psyche of the KGB and its thought process, Thatcher would definitely not have made such a strong impression on the Soviets. And who knows, maybe that would have dramatically changed tensions for the worse. One last little detail I'd like to mention is the prevalence of doublethink in the KGB. For those unaware, doublethink is a newspeak term for holding and believing in two contradictory beliefs at the same time. It's the knowledge that whilst, yeah, 2 plus 2 does equal 4, if the party says it equals 5, from that moment onwards, it equals 5. And a lot of this is present in the Soviet Union. Pravda, the censored communist newspaper in circulation at the time, conveniently did not mention that the Soviet Union was building missiles in Cuba, because it was found that that would reflect badly on leadership. It was only after the dramatic events of the 13 days, where Kennedy was deciding what to do, when Pravda decided to announce, as it was basically just common knowledge, that there were Soviet missiles on Cuba. This is just a small example of not necessarily doublethink, but at least the idea of accepting whatever the state says, regardless of what you know to be the truth. After all, what even is the truth if there is only one version of events of which you're aware? The KGB operated in a similar pattern. There was a period of time where the bosses were absolutely convinced that America was planning a nuclear war against the Soviet Union. All diplomats or spies placed abroad were given explicit instructions to look for evidence of this. And, as Ben McIntyre cleverly mentions, you should never attempt to look for evidence for something you already believe to be true. This meant that every small action, no matter how insignificant, was somehow tied back to America wanting to start nuclear war. Two Soviet citizens commit suicide in London? Nope, they were poisoned. Anti-nuclear weapons demonstrations? Orchestrated by the KGB's active measures, of course. You can see how this is all going to play out with the KGB increasingly drawing connections where there are none to draw, convinced nuclear war is about to break out. It's similar to the principles of doublethink, knowing that what's expected of you is absolutely ridiculous, and that there's no connection between American diplomats leaving the lights on in their offices for an extra minute and nuclear war. But you suck it up and write up a report anyway. Like how Winston is well aware the chocolate ration hasn't been increased, but he keeps his mouth shut, and puts on a face of quiet pleasure so he doesn't appear suspicious. I cannot thank you all enough for tuning in to the first episode, and I hope I was able to reshape some of your views of 1984 and the Cold War. And uh, concerning with today's big question, why don't you send me a DM if you'd like, with your own thoughts and opinions, and you might get a mention in the next episode. Thanks again for listening and I hope you will have a lovely Christmas break.